Hello, hello, good morning, Avita Zane. Welcome to From Bricktown. Dad, how you doing? So wonderful. Uh, we're doing fine in North Carolina now, and got a little rainy weather. We just put up our new conference center yurt. It's about a thousand square feet, so it's looking pretty good. I'm excited to hear that. What else is on your mind? Well, I want to talk about Auburn today, I think. Uh, it was a 15-year a part of my life, and uh, in many ways it was uh, a very good experience, and in many ways it wasn't so good. Their main problem as a university is that they live in Alabama part of the time, and part of the rest of the academic world, and the other is not part of the time. So they do some things very, very well academically, and something socially terribly. So uh, you, you get you get a split reaction to them about everything. As a faculty member, most most of the 15 years I was there, I was treated pretty well. I really can't complain about that. Uh, last year or two, last three three years actually after I sued them for racial discrimination, weren't so good. That's understandable. Uh, but they, uh, one of the problems is you've got a number of people who are worldly and know a lot of things, but they're in Alabama, which is a very backward place. So they stick out much more so in many ways because of their clientele, which is rural and agricultural, than the University of Alabama does. And the two universities hate each other constantly constantly battling each other for supremacy in the state. And the state is pretty much evenly divided uh, by the two universities. But Alabama is always more popular than Auburn is. That's, that's a fact. But, you know, when I first got there, it was a quaint, old-fashioned old place. And I was one of, one of only 20 uh, people of color out of almost 3,000 faculty members. We were all kind of like novelties, and, you know, they didn't bother us. They actually spent a lot of time recruiting us there. But you were only allowed to go, the whole time I was at Auburn, so high in the hierarchy of the university. If you got above that, that what you thought was, they kind of punched you. And very often they would kick you out. They had a number of, of lawsuits and also EELC complaints about what they did to the up-and-coming black person that they hired and recruited to come in and find out he was smart. And uh, I remember in my case, the EEOC found that Auburn had discriminated against me. Uh, I remember I applied for a job as, as the associate director of the extension service. They would just give me an interview. They gave the job to a guy who had been kicked out of the job twice before by court order because he was too stupid to hold the job. And, of course, we, we sued them then, and had that lawsuit lasted about five years. And finally, they, we settled, and we got out of Dodge and moved to North Carolina. But it was a time that was very different. Uh, when I first got to Auburn, everybody was actually very nice. Um, I mean, you kind of get kind of snowed, and as long as you don't try to go too high, 
and you're in your little niche, it kind of works out. But once you get above that little niche, or you try to, then the, the old devil racism strikes in. And, you know, I can give you many instances of what they did and what they didn't do to people of color or people who were different. Uh, like the professor who was Japanese, who was into in, 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 in insects. And so she was female, and they kind of gave her a part of a lab, and not a whole lab. And uh, uh, she had a husband that was her who didn't get a job, but he was there. But he was very much into fire ants. So a person that was in the legislature had a fire problem on his farm. So he scooped up a grant and gave him a job and gave her gave him a better job than she got. Just to deal with fire ants. Uh, when I was there, I was really the only person in the extension service, even though he had a lot of faculty members actually, who actually taught. And I taught for a, a number of years there. And I enjoyed the students. Students were fine. Uh, I mean, they they come from these strange backgrounds of you know, segregation, but they knew who I was before they signed up. And my classes were always oversubscribed because I, I always treated the students as people, somebody that that's going to be a future leader. Because I said to them, each of them was going to come back to me at some point and say, "How did you know they were going to ask me that question?" about a number of things that nobody else had told them. These people mostly were seniors. But I loved uh, the students. They did, I was, I taught, I guess, for four or five years. And uh, of the 15 that I was there. Uh, and the rest of the time, I did a lot of work in the extension service with 4-H and under, underserved youth. And we had a lot, of, a lot of grant stuff I did and got grants for the university. At some point, you know, once you aspire to go too high and say, I want to run this thing, so you can be a, you can be a good cog about this, and an important part of it, but we're not going to let you run anything. If you're black, black, you can't be supervising any white people. That was not going to happen. And it's still that way, and it's just, once, once you enter and you can see it after like 15 years, you realize that this is really very dysfunctional in the long term. The only, so, reason, the only reason they have have blacks on the football team is they put out the black guys. They couldn't they couldn't win. And winning in football in Alabama is all the beat all and all end all. I see where they they want a very winning coach they had. They didn't fire him the other day. Owe him owing him twenty million dollars. At one point. When I was at Auburn, they were paying four coaches not to coach, but they had five. So, I mean, it was, you know, football takes on an outsized kind of thing. Basketball is kind of outsized, but not as much. Uh, but, you know, they're... So, so if a, a black faculty person is experiencing discrimination now, what would your advice be for them? Super. Go to EOC immediately. Go to EEOC immediately and sue them. I think they all need to do that. Because it's only only when you actually smack their hands will they do anything. Remember, Auburn, for most of the initial time I was there, was under court order for the racial discrimination they had done 20 years before. 
Uh, and they did a deal with uh, Alabama A&M and basically bought them out so they, would, they could be relieved from the court order. But they were the same people. They were just total racist. Uh, increased their black faculty and increased their black student body members. But Auburn's student body nowhere reflected the population of Alabama. Nowhere near. Uh, but it was, um, in many ways, for most of the 15 years I was there, it was a pleasant experience. As I said, until I decided I wanted to be a boss and thought I wanted to be in a leadership position, given my having been a mayor and other positions I'd had, I was qualified for, they'd rather give it to a guy who'd been, who'd been removed from that job by court order twice before, because he was a good old boy. Didn't know shit from Shinola. But we should both brown. That's all he can tell you about. But, you know, as I said, when I went to EEOC, the whole thing took about oh, three years, I guess. But they drag you on and hoping you, they could find some way to fire you or something else. In one case, they tried to set me up on something, and I had a, a tape recording of what was actually said. At that point in time, they, they, whenever I met before, they'd tell me to turn the tape, tape recorder off. And my lawyer said I had to do that when he said that, so I did it. But uh, when you're not there, I, I had a tape recording of one of the meetings for a job that I was supposed to get before the 4-H leader for the state, and uh, it was awful. And then when we deposed these people, they didn't know we had a tape of what they had actually said. They tried to log in on the oath, and nobody said nothing about that either. Uh, but it was um, it was an experience, I'll tell you that. But you, you had to be a little bit scared initially, right? No, not really. I was I was pretty pretty confident that the, the teachers union that I was a part of, which had been suing Auburn and on and off for like forty years, would would support me. They did. They spent about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in legal fees to support me. Of course, they got back when they when they won the lawsuit. Uh, but uh, it was everything they could do; they did to you. Uh, after 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 I got my settlement, they then sent sent a made sure that they sent a copy of the settlement to the IRS, so I would have to pay taxes on it. All kinds of stuff. Even though the rules of the IRS at that time said if you win a lawsuit because of the discrimination, you could not owe But they did their best to just punish everybody who, who, who told them out what they did. Every single person. They did their best to just mess with them. If you stay there, they mess with you till you quit. And that was just, you know, the awful thing about it, but it was a great institution for most of the time. And for the students, it's actually a very good place. Even the black students, they had a really good time and the athletes were at the best time. Because everything that Auburn does revolves around athletics, in basketball and football particularly, but also track. It all revolves around the black athletes. Because without the black athletes, they can't win. So it's a duality of purpose that they have. And uh, but my experience here was mixed. A lot of it was very good, and I enjoyed it. 
but some of it was being under the thumb of, you know, I had a boss that was by far less qualified than I was at anything he did, educationally or otherwise. And he did his best to try to get me fired. But he couldn't. So eventually after I left, they got rid of him and the other guys that were part of this. That's what Auburn does. I remember I was, for about 10 years, I was chairman of the Faculty Grievance Committee. We have about three or four grievances a year. And, and what you had is the, the department chairman all over the campus. This would mess with people for stuff. In their case, none of that was really racial, in, except for one case with a Japanese girl that we talked about earlier. But other than that, they weren't really racist. But they were just, we didn't like you, so we're going to mess with you. And, we, and after we mess with you, we've got to make sure you get in a situation where you get fired. And they did that repeatedly when people came up for tenure and other things. So they were not a very fair place. And one thing that Alabama says, if we pay you to settle this, you can't tell anybody this. But as far as I know, to this day, uh, in America, if you have a freedom of speech, but there's nothing they can do about it. So I, but I wanted to talk about Auburn because it was a mixed blessing. And if any, any faculty member asked me if they should go, I'd say yes. In many ways, it was a good academic environment. It was the other part of it that wasn't the social part of it. The part that if you got to be too good, they would sit on you. I'm going to get any dead air in here, but... Uh, <laughs> that was really the interesting thing. I saw, I saw where the football coach, even though he had a winning record, was fired after his last game this year. Actually, I think it was about two years too late, frankly. But uh, he got fired, and as I said, when I was there, at one point they were paying four coaches not to coach because they had fired him. I mean, they were, they were injured. That, that, football, that football thing was just, basketball was almost as bad, but football was, you know, that was it. Two years ago, uh, Auburn actually made the final eight in basketball for the first time. And they got cheated out by the referees. I think it was because of Auburn's reputation, because they should have made the final four. And maybe they would have had a shot, I think, of being the national champion. But Auburn's reputation among a lot of the other people in the athletics is just terrible. You know, they, they, uh, the commissioner at one time was saying that he really didn't want the Auburn in it, but they couldn't have no choice. Remember for probably about 30 years, Alabama on the other side of the state, three hours away, refused to play Auburn in any sport. It took the, the commissioner of the league, who they're both in the same league, to play to each other. And uh, it was like, you know, 20 or 30 years they didn't play each other. Uh, Alabama has always struck me as being a much more liberal place and much more about the uh, things of being equal to people. The reputation of Alabama, the University of Alabama, is much better than Auburn's. Uh, they both had, you know, world-class kind of university facilities and stuff. Except that when a couple of the board members got in the legislature, they made sure certain monies came to Auburn, which gave, they gave to their relatives to build stuff at Auburn. So the grafting was, was you know, the grafting, as we see in, in, in the Trump administration, they were doing a long time ago. And my suspicion is they're still doing it. 
because they were building structures that we had no need for. Just they were white elephants. Nobody you go to a building and nobody would be in the building. <laughs> and today, today I just spent twenty million dollars on it. The other buildings they didn't know what to do with. Programs that nobody in in. But they, well, that's that sends the money. In one case, there was a board member who had a relative that he was also in legislature that got the got the bid to build windows in one of the new buildings. And he had put he had put exactly zero windows in where he got the bid. Of course he got somebody else to do all the work. He just kept all the money. And that was pretty typical. And if you complained about it, then you were gone. Walker was very good about that. You know, if you rocked the boat at all, adios muchachos. And I saw in those ten years that I was a member of the uh or chairman actually of the faculty grievance committee faculty member started sort of a for fun. It took about six months to get it get it to what he had he had a trial. Within six months of, of us ruling in his favor he'd be gone or doing something else. I remember we had two uh Asian professors in one of the departments and they were complaining about what was going on and often got people to break into their lab off off site business. And they broke into the end of their business. And they sued him. Often had to pay him about $5 million. And but they were on, on few. They were Indians from India. So they were one of the few that actually got away with everything. But still, that was, that's what they did. They were like gangsters. But, but you know, I, I enjoyed most of my time in, in White Open. It was only when I, I said, I think I want to do something else. I want, I want the job of, of my boss and my boss's boss. Because I can do it as good as, particularly when they just left it, as, as, as anybody. When it, so when the job was vacant, I said, give it to me. When I looked at the competition, I was better than all the rest of them. Better qualified, better history, better everything. Didn't matter. They wouldn't give it to the, to the white guy. No matter how bad, they, 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 it, it, it was all close. They recruit guys to come in with bogus. The forest leader they brought in after I applied for the forest leader job had never been in forest in his entire life. So he spent the first two years there talking about forage uh, stamps and something. But he was an awful guy to deal with. And he was jealous and, you know, mean and totally hated black people. Shortly after I left, and after, after my stuff ended, they got rid of him too. He suddenly decided he was going to retire, of course. The guy who I sued as part of that, they moved him over to the School of Agriculture, and we never heard from him again. I think he's retired now too. So that was my experience at Auburn University. I suspect there are a number of universities that are in the same boat. One of the fallouts from the Black Lives Matter is they're now looking for black faculty. They're looking to, to hire the PhD that's black that they wouldn't hire a couple of years ago. And that will affect a lot of people, including you, uh, Dr. Drake. And I think that's one of, one of the good things about some of the stuff that happened in black. The Black Lives Matter has caused me to be cognizant of the people I see on television look more like me and you. And the people we see in commercials, and the people who are doing things were suddenly, as, as, as the new president says, 
making his cabinet look like America. Hopefully that's going on now and it wasn't going on before. So I, I, I would say that the data <clears throat> aligns with your anecdotal statements. Uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, 2.6% of their freshmen are African-American males. Good. So this is a this is a class body of 100% of people, but only 2% are black men. Yeah. When the, that doesn't reflect what the state of North Carolina looks like. So I you know, I agree with with what you're saying that there definitely needs to be some change at predominantly white institutions. Well, you know, the key thing is they say that you didn't go to the right place. To get to, uh, to get to the next job, but they make sure you don't can't go to the right place. So systematically, they've done you in at each step of the step of the way. Uh, and I I, mean, I I saw that at many many jobs. Well, I'd be the only black guy there. My education was better than everybody else around me, so they had to give me the job pretty much. And and many of my jobs I had, I was the only one or one of only one or two and the bottom line is it was already when I should look back on it and say it was pre-programmed that's all it was ever going to be uh, when I was a faculty member at four, on the 4-H faculty I was really the only one at the top level I was really the only one that was there uh, and when I looked at the credentials of the other people that were there mine was so much better than any of them it was you know like night and day. But they weren't going to let a black guy be in charge of 4-H. Or a black guy be in charge of, a black woman be in charge of home ec or something else like that. Or farming or any one of the things that we did in extension. Even though the vast majority of that money came from federal government. But. Would you say that your experience was tokenism? Oh, no question. But then again, you know, I, I will say that my parents, my mother particularly, drove me to make sure I could be that token. That was very intentional. That I had to be better educated, that I had to be able to speak a certain way, that I had to know the entire book of knowledge when I was in the seventh grade. That I had to be able to do that and test well. Otherwise, I, I was not going to ever be anything. So no question about that. Uh, and that, and I was told to make sure I didn't get any, any young girl pregnant when I, was, when I was a teenager. My mother was very explicit about that all the time. Uh, now, I was, talking with, I was talking with an A&T graduate recently about the, uh, the sit-ins at the, the lunch counter there. Yep. And kind of how the motivation of the sit-in was, I want to pay this white-owned business so I can sit here and patronize them. Yep. And, you know, I look at it now, <clears throat> and I wonder if the cause would have been better served to build your own diet and be able to charge other people to pay you to sit at the counter. Rudy, in those days of the lunch counter, 
to mount you and never were allowed to acquire enough capital to build a two-stall diner, much less a regular diner. That was the only way they could move ahead, is it, is it bring attention to what was going on. I mean, we, we talk about that, but the, the reality is the vast majority of my life, and I've made an awful lot of money at various times, is that every, every time we got to a certain level, you were never allowed to go any further than that. I think in, in one of the past podcasts, I talked about the guy that was a mail, that had a, a, a delivery service to deliver the mail from one post office to another. And he had tractor trailers, and he was only allowed to get to be so big, and his banker said to him, I'm not going to give you any more money, even though I know you, you, you'll make money on it, because I can't let you get too big. And that's, that was really, that's really the key. You're never going to be allowed to get the, cap, the capital in a capitalist society to be able to do that. That has changed. I mean, it's, 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 it's been one or two here and there, but it's more than it ever was. You know, I watched this, this HBO show called Industry, and that's what they're talking about. The fact is that you've got to be a perfect kind of person in a certain kind of way and dress a certain kind of way and, and keep your mouth shut to even get your foot, foot in the door. Once you learn how to do stuff, we do well. And we can get stuff. You know, that's one of the reasons why when I built the RV park, I didn't borrow a dime from anybody. I could have gotten some money, I think, from various people, but we'd have, we would have been bought. older than two of them for a long time. And if we didn't do everything exactly right, they would have taken it over. That's why I owe nobody nothing now. I don't have a single penny of debt any, to anybody for my house, my business, or nothing else. That's one of the traps. Because we always have downturns. When when the boss decides to fire you and you suddenly gotta pay a mortgage or you gotta pay a car payment, because you they've encouraged you to get debt, and suddenly you have no, you have you know, have nothing. We come out of this, this C nineteen stuff much worse as a people than we entered it. Because we were heavily into debt already. And we haven't been able to pay it because we have no jobs. We're the ones who, who were first, last hired, and still first fired. And uh, they have a choice between them, one of their buddies and you. Out you go. We liked you, Bob, but you got to go. You got to get to stepping. So what's the solution? I think Black Lives Matter is the solution. Because suddenly people seeing people beat up in the streets who didn't do anything. Suddenly it becomes, it ain't he said, she said, it's he said, and I feel, I saw it. And more and more white policemen now are saying what I saw in the MPs. Uh, if you beat up on somebody, they're going to find out about it and they'll fire your ass. So you may be inherently a racist, but, you know, we're going to make sure that this doesn't go any further than it is. Look at that, that kid in uh, Wisconsin, who's from Illinois, I guess, or Indiana, one or the other. And he went and shot people in Wisconsin. Drove back home, and he spent a little bit of time in jail, and now he's out. He's a murder suspect. They have him on tape killing people. 
and oh, we, 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 the president said, oh, he's okay though. He know he shot those two people. They were protesting against against you know equality, so he did the right thing. And if I was to make a bet, he won't spend much time at all in jail. When all said and done, he done killed two people. And I don't care if he was 17 or not. He knew what he was doing. If it had been a young black black kid, uh, my son or, son or your son, guess what? He'd still be in jail. And he'd be in jail for many, many years. And that's, that's, what's, that's what's unequal about what's going on. And that's one of the things, as I, as I look back on my life, uh, and I've actually had a privileged life. You know, my parents prepared me to be the smartest guy or be the only black guy possible uh, in everything I ever did. And I was very successful at that. And I believed I could do and be anything. And most of the time, if you believe that, you can do it. Because you can outstrive almost everybody. I was a striver. When I looked down, when I looked back over the 75 years of my life, I was successful in almost everything I ever did. I had some down times, but some down periods, but the vast majority of my life has been wonderful. I've got, you know, a wonderful family and, you know, wonderful kids. And kids are getting, I've encouraged all of them to go to college and they're doing that and we have done that. All but one. And the reality is, is that we're working on that one too. And you never know. I was talking to your brother Bobby today about making sure he goes and finishes his doctorate. He's got his master's degree now from the University of Texas. I said, you ought to go on now. And you know, he, he got his first degree from Auburn, so he got, got, got that. Now go get your doctorate now. That's what he's, he's talking about doing. And there was a time when that would be unheard of. So I was encouraging him that. We actually had that as we went shopping today. I think he's thinking of doing that next September, in fact. Taking a year off from his teaching job and actually just do that. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that y'all are bonding and had a great day today. Yep, we did. Still argue one time. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Well, as we close out today, um, you definitely said a lot. Thank you for sharing your life, your life experiences, good, bad, ugly, and different, beautiful, the challenges, the struggles. Uh, what are some of the advice and kind of final notes you have for the listeners? Treat everybody equally. Give everybody a fair shot and it works out for you too. And remember, talent comes in all sizes and shapes and colors. Don't demean somebody because of what he looks or what a skin looks like. Give everybody a fair shot, and it works out better for everybody. Adios, muchacho.